Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California and our special program tonight, Trans Month Talks, Trans Wellness, Equity, and Health, brought to you in partnership with San Francisco's Office of Transgender Initiatives. Our thanks go to all of the organizations and leaders participating tonight, and you'll meet them all in just a moment. I'm John Zipperer, the club's Vice President of Media and Editorial. We hope you are staying safe and are well wherever you are. We look forward to seeing you in person again someday in the future at the Commonwealth Club's headquarters in San Francisco. Until that happens, we are doing all of our programming online. This is the latest in nearly 300 online programs the club has produced in just the past seven months. You can find all of our upcoming programs as well as audio and video from our past programs and how you can help support our program production at commonwealthclub.org. Our program today is made up of two panel discussions. The first will be moderated by Claire Farley, Director of the Office of Transgender Initiatives, and the second will be moderated by Michelle Miao, host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Now it's my honor to hand off this program to Claire Farley. Claire? Thank you so much, John. It's an honor to be with you all. And thank you so much to the Commonwealth team for partnering with us and making this special event happen. I also want to thank all of you for joining us tonight for this special Trans Month of Awareness discussion. I also want to give a special shout out to all of our community partners who helped make this special night happen. Tonight, we have an incredible lineup of speakers to discuss the future of trans rights and a special panel conversation on trans wellness, health, equity, and COVID. Earlier this month, uh, we had partnered with the San Francisco Trans Film Festival, and we want to send a special shout out to Shauna Varaga and her team for their continued support in supporting trans filmmakers and artists across the country. Our trans communities and allies are recognizing this week as Trans Awareness Week, although in San Francisco, we like to go big. In 2018, we joined Mayor London Breed in expanding the week and declaring November Trans Awareness Month in San Francisco. This tradition has continued in our annual flag raising, and on Monday, we raised the trans flag over City Hall and it will remain up throughout the week as a symbol of the city's ongoing commitment to trans equality uh, for all. Also, there is some additional programming throughout the rest of the month that we wanna make sure that you're aware of. Please check out our calendar linked in the chat. We also wanna highlight that on Friday, November 20th, San Francisco will be honoring a virtual Trans Day of Remembrance event. We wanna send a special thanks to Nikki Kalma and the entire TDR planning committee for making that event happen. Transgender Day of Remembrance was founded 21 years ago by Gwendolyn Ann Smith and is now recognized around the world. This event brings visibility to the lives lost due to anti-trans violence. This year, we've passed a grim milestone with 34 trans lives lost to fatal violence that has disproportionately impacted Black trans women and women of color. We hope you will join us for this ceremony on Friday and honor those lives. Although this month has looked different due to the ongoing pandemic, we have still come together virtually to celebrate one another, honor our history, our resilience, and our strength against all odds. It's now my honor to share a special message from Mayor London Breed in honor of the month. Let's check it out. Hi, I'm Mayor London Breed. Thank you to Claire Farley and the Office of Transgender Initiatives for making sure that despite the challenges we face due to COVID-19, 
we are still recognizing and honoring Transgender Awareness Month through our traditional flag-raising ceremony. This year's ceremony may look a little different, but our mission to end discrimination and violence against transgender and gender nonconforming people remain the same. In fact, these past few months have shown us how critical it is that we continue this very important work, fighting for strong legal protections, keeping people housed, safe, and healthy, especially during this public health crisis, and supporting critical community efforts that are led by and for our trans and gender nonconforming communities. Yet despite the many obstacles, this community has also shown incredible resilience and strength. During this month, we remember the leaders and historic moments that have shaped the trans movement in San Francisco and across the country, from the Compton's cafeteria riots and our roots as the first city in the country to honor Transgender Day of Remembrance, to today, where San Francisco is home to the first Office of Transgender Initiatives in the nation. Despite our progress and commitment to equality, our work will not be done until there is not one more death in this country due to violence against transgender and gender nonconforming people. But this month is a time to reflect on the progress that we have made here in San Francisco. I am proud to be mayor of a city that is a beacon of hope for those who seek true equality, tolerance, and inclusion. Thank you for joining us today to celebrate and honor Transgender Awareness Month in San Francisco. Thank you so much, Mayor Breed, and thank you for your ongoing support of the community. Despite the ongoing pandemic, Mayor Breed has committed to invest in our essential services and community. In October, we announced an ongoing commitment of over $5 million annually to support our vital trans programs and services, from housing to employment, wellness, and mental health professional development, and violence prevention services. We will hear from many of these organizations tonight who are supporting our community every single day. Now it's my honor to invite our panel in. The COVID impact has had an incredible impact on our daily lives and our communities from unemployment, businesses closing, huge health disparities across our communities of color, and the ongoing impact of the pandemic on our health and wellness, and this continues to grow. Although we have also seen so many moments of resiliency and support of our communities where people have dedicated their lives to service during what, what they can do to give back from our healthcare workers to our first responders, community organizations, and those on the front lines. So many residents have stepped up to assure that we're keeping each other safe by staying home, social distancing when we're out and wearing masks. We honor those who are checking in on their neighbors and working with everyone to support supplies and needs from delivering groceries to our seniors, emergency housing support, mutual aid fund efforts. The community has really stepped up during this challenging time and we need to keep doing that work. Now I'm honored to welcome our dynamic panel of community leaders working on the front lines to advance trans wellness, health equity in the time of COVID and beyond. First up is Akira Jackson, Executive Director of Taja's Coalition, Nicole Santamaria of Ella Para Translatina, Jenna Rapquez, Program Director of Gender Health SF, 
and Shannon Amitten, trans activist and co-founder of San Francisco Bay Area Queer Nightlife, and Ajali Rimi Koka, president of Paravar Bay Area. Thank you all for joining me. Now, Nicole, first question to you. As you know, we are seeing a rise again in the Bay Area and across the country of COVID cases. We also know that communities of color, specifically Black and Latinx communities, are disproportionately impacted by the virus. How are you seeing this impact members of LFR Trans Latina, and how are you addressing this need in the community? Well, thank you so much, Claire. Thank you, everybody, to be here and for sharing this space. Well, at Ela Para Trans Latina, when the shelter-in-place ordinance started, we worked immediately to change our program. So our program was the first program, a LGBTQI plus program that will directly online. So we created a hybrid program and we never stop. We never close our ongoing support to our communities. So that was possible as well in these uh, very challenging times to create a strategies to bring the resources to our communities. And how we did that, it was through community. So one of the things that I found in this pandemic it is that here in the gender diverse trans queer uh, communities of color, in particular black and brown uh, communities, uh, we, are, we have to look for each other and we have been doing that. So I'm pretty uh, grateful with all the efforts that we have been done together. We implement an LGBTQI plus COVID relief uh, coalition. And I had the opportunity to meet, for example, wonderful partners that I didn't have in the past. For example, Parivar with Anjali Rimi. Uh, we have been working for a long time ago with our sister Sastajas Coalition, our sister with TGIJP, our Black trans sisters that has been also impacted, not only with the COVID pandemic, also with the pandemic of hatred that our communities are in right now. And as, as a proof are the increase of cases of murders against trans women, black and brown, mostly during this year. So this pandem both pandemics for our communities are very, very uh, harsh on us. So, for example, we, we had the opportunity to to work and partner with Tajas and OTI to bring people to uh, to be housed because in our communities, chronic uh, homelessness, it is a reality. So how we can navigate those needs and those uh, and how we bring the resources to our community within the community. So uh, sadly at our program, we have two losses in this uh, period of pandemic. And one of them uh, was uh, very early during the pandemic and it was us at the end of the day was her trans sisters, in particular trans Latinas, in particular Ella para trans Latina, in particular myself, the one who was looking for her until we found her. 
So, and that's the meaning of the teamwork in this very difficult time. So we have been continuing working together and created in community strategies to continue working. And we are also strengthening the uh, support that we have already done uh, since many years ago. So uh, ELA para Translatina, as ELA has 14 years uh, working, but before that we have 26 years working for our Translatina Latinx community. And we are planning to continue doing that work with the support uh, among us and also uh, the city support. Thanks so much, Nicole. And I know that you're doing also incredible work with mutual aid efforts. Um, community can come by and get gift cards and resources. Um, and we've partnered together on referrals to the shelter in place hotels. So thank you so much for all the work you're doing. And we'll add those resources in the chat. Um, next, Akira, um, Tasha's Coalition works um, to address violence against trans people of color. Um, as well as overall systemic uh, injustices and inequalities. How are you seeing the uh, pandemic impacting trans communities uh, and intensifying these inequalities uh, for trans folks of color? And what are some of the solutions that you and the Taja Coalition effort are using to address this? Thank you, Claire. Um, so housing continues to be the biggest issue with our, in, in our community. Um, the coalition has identified that there is a lack of understanding in accessing housing services. Um, we continue to be creative in addressing emergency housing. Like um, over these months, uh, we've had so many different community leaders and just people who just had a, a lot of concern about uh, our people staying housed or actually getting housing um, with the fires that was happening and just a lot of things that were happening around in the Bay Area. Just it, it was beautiful to see folk come into action. Um, to just create these these models um, that were short term, and it allowed a lot of our participants to be able to think more. It allowed our participants as well as the community leaders to think about more of a longer term strategy. The coalition is um, continue to work closely with the Office of Trans Initiatives, the San Francisco LGBT Center, Ella Lion Martin, and St. James Infirmary uh, to place unhoused transgender people into short term housing. This issue has been addressed. Um, so right now uh, we have uh, a TGNC task subsidy task force, and this is like really uh, it's a it's a new project. Uh, we've been working with it for um, the last few months. Um, the TGNC task force is comprised of um, community experts, so those that have the live experience, as well as um, those who have some more access into on the the housing sectors, whether if it's property managers or uh, landlords and just people who have concern around housing and expertise. Um, and this, this is a pretty interesting model. So it's like a, uh, a surveillance monitor, a surveillance and um, monitoring model um, that also provides technical assistance to um, uh, programs that are providing uh, similar services that are uh, transgender and gender nonconforming, welcoming and inclusive housing structure. So um, I'm actually really excited about that. Um, some of the folk are on the call right now, and I'm just—it's just really good to see folk, and we're still smiling, and we're still pushing forward through this. Um, Taja's—we continue to keep staying focused on service linkage. Um, 
the trans community continues to need support with attaining gender affirming documents. So in mobile devices um, that allows them to um, participate in remote services and financial planning workshops. So it's just basically the same things that what we've always have had in the forefront. Like literally we've been marginalized. We just haven't been at the table. We haven't been included. And in this, you know, pandemic, what happens is that we're further pushed to push back into those margins and further not seen. So the, the beautiful thing about this is that our community leaders, as well as our um, city officials um, are just stepping up to just make the call to answer the call and continue on with their pledges. And I, I think um, I'm looking for a really good year. Thank, thank you. you so much, Akira. And I know that your work through Trans Home and your leadership there has been so instrumental in having that program launch, serving over 100 people a year, um, 87 people on ongoing or emergency subsidies. And this time is so important. So thank you for your work. And we're getting a lot of good questions in the chat around housing. So we'll come back to that. Um, but first up, Anjali, uh, can you talk us a little bit about how Paravar Bay Area has partnered with the Bay Area trans and LGBT community to organize and mobilize um, around the pandemic? And how did this start? And what are some of the essential things or resources that community is asking for? Thank you, Claire. Beautiful uh, to see you all here. Um, I think as we all heard, trans folks are always pushed to the margins and in a pandemic it's only furthered and so this came about with a simple phone call but more importantly a grassroots attempt for us to build bottom-up in a very very strategic way now to pull all the resources together and we needed to do that because the strength is in all of us coming together rather than trying to find uh, a way to sustain and survive during this pandemic. Um, so Parivar, uh, with, with the support of the Office of Transgender Initiatives, uh, kicked off a coalition uh, for being how green we are. Um, we are two years uh, into existing. Um, we are a South Asian transgender nonconforming centered South Asian uh, organization. And we really had a vision to pull together the strengths, the resources, the beautiful hearts and the leadership in the Bay Area so we could support all of our community. And if there's one community that can get through tough times, it's this community, the LGBTQ community. So this was a beautiful example of community coming together during the crisis. And you know, it was important for us to hear each other out rather than be continuously within our home communities and continue to serve them because we were all doing the same effort. And rather than duplicate it, we could scale it. We could come together and do something different. And that's exactly what transpired. We went out into the community with great transparency and accessibility with the website and asked the community what their needs were. And the most important need for folks was to pay their rents, pay their, keep a roof over their head, followed by needing support for essentials, food, basic food. And then the third support they needed was to be able to get prescriptions and medical attention for essentials that they needed to survive. So the needs were paramount, but our effort was kind of building up. So we tried our best to come up with strategies that worked for all of, worked for this model. 
in total, we gave out $132,000, or I should say we we raised $132,000, including $75,000 from the city of San Francisco, which we're very grateful for. We have given out about $60,000 and supported over 300 folks. And 56% of those folks were trans, black, brown, Latinx, people of color. So, you know, there's always this kind of missing piece in the nonprofit world where we don't have enough data, which was one of our strategies to have a data-driven decision-making to make sure our disbursement was prioritizing people at intersections that were further marginalized. Another strategy that worked for us was to build a model of gathered funds and resources with community input. And as we are continuing to go through this and open up our second round of financial relief, we are learning. We are learning to scale our strengths and remain accessible to the community. We are learning to be open to adapting to different ways of community needs that are emerging and want to build this model out for sustainability because there was a silver lining in all of this that we realized that we could exist together and we can, we'll be so much more powerful bargaining for the common good of many more in our community. So, you know, I'm very grateful for Claire and all the community leaders that trusted and came together and support, helped support a lot more lives than we could have with this coalition. Thank you so much. And so many of those coalition partners are on this chat tonight. Um, so, and we'll hear from more of them later in the program. And also we'll add the SF Bay Area COVID Coalition uh, website um, in the chat as well. So next I wanna turn it over to Shannon. Um, you're busy with so many different things, but somehow found the time to um, co-found um, the Queer Nightlife Fund. Can you tell us a little bit about this work and what inspired it um, and some of the resources that you're sharing with the community? Absolutely. Um, it, again, it is an absolute honor to be here with all of you. This uh, room, Zoom room is full of all of my favorite community uh, leaders. Thank you for the work that you do. Um, the Queer Nightlife uh, Fund um, came out of the immediate realization that folks that rely um, on nightlife um, for their livelihood were, were going to be very quickly um, without an income. Um, initially, when it was created, we thought, you know, this will be a month or two months or maybe three months. Um, but for queer folks that work in nightlife, you're often paid cash. And so um, we knew that unemployment wasn't going to be an option. So, you know, we have go-go dancers, uh, party promoters, um, all kinds of all kinds of dancers. Uh, you know, I, sh I shouldn't limit it to go-go. Um, so uh, DJs, you know, and this, this was a community that has always been really welcoming in, uh, in terms of um, it's been a safe place for trans folks to express themselves freely. So we quickly came together and um, through community-based fundraising, we were able to provide 260 or raise $266,000 um, and give that out to uh, over 300 folks. Um, we also launched a Queer Nightlife Talk um, program. So we discuss of the moment uh, topics like mental health uh, for folks that are used to going out and getting um, lots of social time. Um, it has been a really challenging uh, period um, of shelter in place. 
Um, and we've also imagined a uh, more inclusive nightlife because nightlife, while it, it can be a safe place to express yourself, it is often uh, ripe with uh, misogyny and white supremacy. And so we are really looking at um, how to reimagine a, a better nightlife when we open. Uh, we've also uh, partnered um, with the Entertainment Commission uh, to advocate. And um, again, nightlife doesn't, there's no union for nightlife. Um, there's nobody really organized and looking out for each other. So we've realized that there's, there's a need beyond just this moment. Um, yeah. And so we also have made it a part of our mission statement to, um, to prioritize women, transgender, transgender, non-binary, and all Black, Indigenous, and people of color in our work. Um, that is that is something that's very necessary um, in this moment as we reimagine a better future. Um, so yeah, that's that's a little bit about what we do. Thanks so much, Shannon. Really well said. And uh, make sure you check out Queer Night Life Fund. Uh, we have that in the chat. Uh, next but not least, um, Jenna Rapuez, um, Department of Public Health, um, would love to just hear more from you around Gender Health SF and how you're seeing both in the research work that you've done uh, for so many years, um, what are some of the health inequities that we see um, that are emerging from COVID but that are compounded um, more broadly and specifically impacting communities of color? Yes, um, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a great pleasure to be in company with really fabulous community leaders. Um, first and foremost, I mean, I think it's really important to like really think that without a doubt, there is um, just really like um, rich, rich data and research around the experiences of trans folks um, around health disparities, stigma, discrimination, and lack of access to quality care. And that's, um, and I think that has grown from like HIV research uh, and community organizing. Since for a while, there was a lot of invisibility and exclusion of trans folks um, in that data. And so there are, you know, it's through kind of community organizing and community visibility that, you know, really grew rich with the data Data that we currently have around um, health disparities for trans folks. Um, I also just want to really point out, I mean, I think, you know, it's really important poignant to point out that in the past, like, year or the past couple of years, most recent years, um, the current climate that we all kind of have been navigating really does really speak to the inequity and systemic institutionalized transphobia that exists in our current society around exclusion and denial of trans folks and equitable access to healthcare. So that's just really important to really frame and understand. I mean, when you think about um, what has been messaged from the federal government and around, and around potential loss of access to equitable healthcare and protections of, of these services, um, there is a lot of anxiety and fear and worry around potential loss of that and what that really means. And so I just think that besides the compounding experiences of navigating COVID um, and top of potential loss of these benefits that are afforded to us, I think that the, the reality of just having to really navigate that and fear and, and, and accept that is really real for many of our communities. Um, you know, a couple of things that we think about when we, Gender Health SF specifically, you know, Gender Health SF was born out of community advocacy and community partnerships who advocated for a program such as ours, because we know that in community, um, access to surgeries and general affirming care improves quality of life. It increases engagement in, with your mental, with your 
primary care providers, mental health providers, it does really um, make a big impact overall. Um, for us at Gender Health SF, um, we work with folks who have never imagined having access to these um, services, who never even imagined being able to get surgeries and, and never imagined being able to, to get quality care given kind of the historic discrimination and, and marginalizations of our community. And so the way we really think about Gender Health SF is really being intentional of how we approach our model um, and kind of really, you know, the other thing I just wanted to add about your health stuff is that we are the first of its kind in a public health system to be created to respond and serve to our most um, under-resourced and poor trans folks who are navigating lives. And so I think, you know, the way we think about how we model that is really ensuring that we, we support patients uh, in having education, making really good decisions around their health and access to care, uh, enforcing um, informed consent. Uh, other things that we really implement that has been really helpful um, for us is that because we are peer-led and peer-driven with peer navigators supporting patients to advocate and to really make really these informed decisions, it really does make a big impact in overall outcomes. You know, it's not just about access, right? It's about the quality of care that you get um, in a healthcare setting and the treatment that you that you get from providers. And so I think, you know, I think that that model that we've implemented in at Gender Health SF has actually been really crucial in being able to support our patients to have really good health outcomes and have really good quality of life. Um, one thing that is unique to us, I think um, that we a couple of things, right? Two other things I wanted to add um, that is unique to gender health SF is um, it's not just about surgery. It's also about wellness and preparing folks to be able to have really good outcomes. And because, you know, um, our experience around health is not just singular, it's multiple things, right? We're navigating social injustices, discrimination, transphobia, housing, employment. And so I think we like, we like, we really kind of, we really implement and really look at patients as a whole, as opposed to just a person who's you know trying to access surgery, and so we we really truly really try to respond to that as best as we can, and really implement a whole person care model and approach to supporting our patients. Um, lastly, I think that was really important to just wellness and this notion of um, peer development and workforce development. Um, you know, I think you know uniquely to our program is that we are able to implement peers to support them in their professional development and, you know, really gain skills so they can, you know, gain um, skills that they can actually, you know, uh, would be able to use um, for, to further their career in gender health. Thanks so much, Jenna. And we're getting some really good questions in the chat. Um, and this first one is about healthcare. Um, and, you know, I'll throw this to Jenna and then to the group if you'd like to add, but it says with the change in the presidential administration, um, which I know is uh, a blessing um, and still in process, but, um, but we're on, on that path, um, as well as with the new SCOTUS um, uh, judge. Um, how do you see Obamacare? Is it safe and uh, will it continue to be restricted? And what does that mean for trans folks? Jenna, do you want to speak to this? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. I mean, I think there are still unknowns around kind of what the future may hold around Obamacare or Affordable Care Act. I mean, as we speak, there are some movements to um, take that away potentially, and this is the fear of what that may look like. 
But I think, you know, I, I go back into my work and experience in public health for about 20 years. I, I've gone through the, the Bush administration. <laughs> I've gone through many other things that has happened in our community. And I think one, one thing remains true is that, you know, our community is strong and resilient, right? And we're actually you know, up for a fight, whether or not um, some of these protections may be taken away or maybe revealed back. I think that is that is the moment that we have now and the power that we have actually in, in our organization, organizing skills to be able to work towards, you know, some of these things that are currently under attack. And so I think I, I am hopeful and I try to remain, remind folks is that, you know, I think despite the this kind of looming fear that these protections may be taken away. I think there are strategies and there are folks who are really you know, leading and spearheading some of these, these issues so that they don't necessarily get taken away from our community and that these, are, these protections are preserved for our, for our community. Yeah, thank you so much. And that reminds me too of something you said earlier just around the last four years and the administration and really seeing the impact of the attack on housing and uh, healthcare access, um, and so really looking at what the future can be in, in overturning a lot of those discriminatory rules. Another question that we have in from the chat, um, I'll send over to uh, Akira first. Um, transgender people are at risk of eviction, and with the eviction moratoriums expiring um, soon, we don't have a date on that for sure, but they've been extended more than once. What can be done about that? And what are some of the strategies that Taja Coalition and Trans Home are using to address emergency housing needs? Yeah, um, good question. So uh, at this point, um, like in, we've actually like preparing for like the rainy day fund thing with the pro project. So um, Taja's is um, um, responsible um, in addressing this as many uh, as, as long as, uh, so basically we have enough, we kind of, I don't want to like jinx it or anything like that, but like we're working on ways on making sure that mm -hmm. uh, like those are like up for eviction or like any types of crises that we can respond into it. And it's, it's a little bit more promising. Um, I'm kind of excited about it, but I, like I said, I don't want to jinx it, but um, just a just so just as the same with our trans home, our trans home is, you know, um, have been faced with so many different types of um, issues, even from out of out of San Francisco and like like literally nationwide. Um, I get so many emails and phone calls and as well as the rest of the team around um, being, um, you know, put out of their homes um, just because they're coming out as and, I, and identifying as trans into their communities and their families. And um like, you know, that's a form of crisis. And oftentimes, sometimes, you know, with, especially with this pandemic, um, the eviction um, could possibly happen based on the fact that they're not having enough funds. And that's something that we have been seeing arise um, is that, you know, people aren't able to um, continue to keep paying for um, their rent because they're out of work. And um, unemployment services, like as what you mentioned earlier, um, Shannon, um, that, you know, for those that were, um, you know, entertainers or um, workers in like the nightlife or even like service industry workers um, who often sometimes uh, don't have like proper documentations and they're just, you know, just surviving. Um, they don't have, you know, um, they don't have that type of income. So this is something that we've been planning for for months and we've actually been seeing like trickle down to actually multiplying 
um, as the months to come. But um, we're definitely pulling together with the TGNC task force and working with the office, um, continue to keep working with the Office of Trans Initiative and the Our Trans Home SF project to make sure that there is some type of safety net. Thank you so much. And Nicole and uh, Remy, can you both maybe speak to this next question? Um, someone's asking, um, you know, San Francisco is such a leader in recognizing the need of trans folks. Um, what can we do to help support other cities and other communities? I know you both do a lot of work internationally as well um, to help share what we've learned here in the Bay Area. Nicole, first to you. <laughs> big question. Yeah, it is a very, a very good question. Good, good question. And also very tough, you know, because um, yeah, as an immigrant, as an, as an indigenous, intersexual, transsexual woman of color here in this nation and having all the, all the different factors that are involved in, in, for example, in this kind of, of situations of gender diverse and, and trans queer people, uh, I think that we, one of the best things that I always found out it is based in the in the work in community work. So one of the things that I I will recommend uh, or I will suggest to to the rest because as Akira has mentioned, uh, when our programs became uh, online or start open our doors online, that was the opportunity to have a uh, participants I, nationwide and even outside of U.S. So we have been hearing uh, different challenges around nationwide and also outside of the U.S. So one of the things it is like uh, create these safety, create safety plans, create networks that you can that you can trust and our communities can provide those safety networks, you know, and trying to come together with a with a solid plans together to also make the governments, to make the majors, to make the politicians accountable for their, uh, you know, policies and their decisions. So because we are also navigating the margins, the discrimination that is still persist in our in our institu institutions uh, here. So when we are uh, struggling to survive and thrive and flourish in uh, in 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 a in a world that is against uh, trans and gender diverse people, we need to have our backs. So working in, for example, for me, this, this administration that is leaving this past administration has been like a, working as a therapist before, like a, living an abusive relationship, you know, yeah. and as an abusive relationship, you need to have a safety plan always how to, how to get out of these situations with the self-determination, eh, investing and believing in our communities uh, believe in them in the so-called minorities because uh, when we are using that word in our communities 
coming from cis people, it is also a tool against us because they are taking away our power from us. So with that sense, it is coming together to, to make visible our our capacities, our strengths, our gifts that we have to offer in order to create the responses that we need to see happen for safer uh, communities, you know, where the human rights are granted, not only in paper, but also in the, in, in the practice, you know. So I will suggest that and Remy. <laughs> so beautifully said, Nicole. I think in ba the Bay Area, we definitely live in a safe haven. And I can say that as an immigrant, as someone who's lived in the South um, and many countries. But I think the best thing to do is to help people elsewhere who do not have the same sense of security to build sustainable models of equity, economic justice. And that's what you know Parivar has done through this COVID is support three organizations back in India and be able to give them some sort of a building capability, some sort of a way to have access, some sort of a way to have awareness that they're not only relegated to doing sex work and begging, which kind of is at standstill when the whole country goes into a lockdown. But what? Right here in this country, uh, through this pro coalition, the SF LGB, SF, um, LGBT plus COVID relief coalition, the word got out and we got requests. Uh, I personally got phone calls from our Latinx trans folks uh, all the way down in Rio Grande Valley in Southern Texas um, and Mexico. And it's about making sure that we are able to carve out resources for them connect them with their local resources. And finally, I would say it is about sharing our best practices. We are all learning in this together and we are all struggling, but in a way the world is boundaryless now. We can all be there for one another. And that's what we have, we have seen work well is to bring those folks into support groups, bring those folks into events. So they know that they have a community that they can see, talk, and is uh, there to support them, even though they don't feel safe going out of their homes, out of their doors, just because of the prevailing loss or the community stigma and such. Thanks so much. And I know that many of you also participated with our Trans Advisory Committee Advocacy Day. And to Nicole's point, you know, letting elected officials know the impact and the need for resources during COVID and beyond is so important. Um, I want to come back to wellness and mental health in a moment, but we have another question from uh, Facebook that I'm hoping, Shannon, um, you could speak to as well as Akira. Um, how can employers create a more welcoming environment for trans community um, and what are some of the healthcare benefits and things that folks can add to create a stronger culture uh, of inclusion? Well, hiring uh, trans leaders is a really, really great place to start. If it's all white and cis at the top, then you're, you're going to really struggle with creating an inclusive environment. Um, so that would, that's always my first advice. Um, and as for healthcare, um, I'm going to defer to, I'm going to defer on that one. Yeah, definitely. Well, 
Akira, do you want to speak to this a little bit? I honestly, I kind of like want to definitely echo what Shannon said, like um, working in so many different types of capacities. um, Oftentimes, like what you mentioned at the top, it's just not the communities that there's no representation of us. And therefore, um, you know, people are circumventing the system or not having like any types of live experience to make sure that these services are more inclusive. And also um, uh, welcoming and culturally sensitive and understanding. So um, without even just using the word culturally sensitive, um, people need the lived experience to actually provide adequate services to the communities, um, especially um, especially in healthcare capacities. Like there's been times where um, I have, you know, been in positions to where it wasn't the most welcoming. And, um, and me being who I am, of course, I had, um, you know, advocated on my own behalf, because um, I'm thinking like, okay, well, if this is happening to me, then I'm quite sure something else has happened to other people who may not have the, um, the voice or may not feel like that they're, that they have the time to sit there and um, address these issues to people who are, that we trust. And, um, and they make a lot of money to serve us. So, yeah. So... Yeah, that's such a great point, you know, really thinking about how do we not only hire trans folks, but once we're in those workplaces, how do we, how do we get, how are we respected? How are pronouns used correctly? How do we have access to, you know, basic transition care? Um, Jenna, being our health expert, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, obviously California mandates, um, trans inclusion across benefits, but what are some of the things that uh, you would recommend to employers or allies that want to champion um, trans healthcare rights within within their workplace? Right. Um, thank you. I, th- I think a couple of things, I mean, just echoing what Akira and Shannon was, uh, Shannon was saying earlier, which is, you know, hiring trans folks, um, really believing in their professional development, implementing some workplace practices that are inclusive and safe for trans folks to work in and also thrive. Um, you know, I think <clears throat> for us, what I think about often, even in, the, in my lens um and even in san francisco that there is constant discrimination and transphobia that happens in the healthcare setting even in san francisco uh, i'm you know i i can see that I've, I've seen it in in, in my in my role and so i think there there is a lack of capacity and bias microaggressions that happen with um, healthcare providers and the need for more increased training. I mean, I think um, in the past decade, we've done a lot of one-on-ones um, and really providing safe affirming care for or safe affirming spaces for trans folks, but we need to do 102 and 103 to continue to provide our, edu- our providers on the, ev- the evolving nature of gender identity and 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 the, the kind of the, the binary but the spectrum that exists within our community. And I think those are the things that are still lacking. Um, There also just needs to be um, institutional um, commitment to address transphobia and systems of oppression that we all know exists and is prevalent in many of our healthcare settings and institutions that that you know sometimes are, are, are that, that exist are not necessarily addressed. And so those are the things that are, are really important to like shift the way in which we think about systems of care and think about shifting access to care because it's not just about access, right? It's about the quality of care that we get. Um, it's about really being respected and 
and really being honored and really giving being a partner in our in our healthcare decision making processes to ensure that you know we get the level of equity and respect that we deserve as trans folks. Yes, equity. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Anjali, do you want to also add to this? Absolutely. Um, I come from a come with a different perspective of having worked in for profit for almost twenty years. I would say everything mentioned is so true and needs to happen, but ultimately it comes down to any company for profit or any organization nonprofit needs to really build and foster a culture of inclusion that's just not plastered up on a wall, but actually is seen in every single associate that walks through that door. It comes down to building capability to look at trans, gender nonconforming, diverse folks to be very well qualified associates and not allow their identity cloud over their competency and hence stunted in their growth or not even be employed. And the third thing is around capability. It's about organizations taking on things that are more tangible, such as really offering true trans inclusive health benefits rather than having a roster and a calendar of doing trans events throughout the year. That's probably more diversity tokenizing, but make it more sustainable that's gonna impact individual lives. And as mentioned, I think it ultimately comes down to recognizing their own privilege and their own bias and working past that and allowing a trans person or anybody who's on the margins to be able to bring their full to Thank you. Yeah. So it sounds like I'm hearing education and awareness, but also what are the tangible steps and ways that, you know, allies can, you know, support in all gender restrooms and pronoun usage and benefits and that it's not just the trans employee um, that's doing all that work. Um, we have a lot of questions, but not a whole lot of time. Um, I want to make sure that we um, have a chance to hear from all of you around uh, trans wellness and mental health. Um, I know for myself, this period of COVID and as we talked about the last four years has been really challenging. Um, what are some of the ways that you're seeing this be impacted um, within your work and how are you all taking care of yourself um, during this time? And I know Nicole's a mental health professional, so I think I'll turn it over to her first and then we can just hear from everybody. Okay, I think that, uh, that uh, personally in the program I've been seeing and my staff and also our participants, we are all immigrants. So in Latinx culture, the sense of community, the sense of family is so rooted. So quarantine and, you know, isolation can be very rough for, for everybody or for each one of us. But it is kind of a implementing the grounding techniques about breathing. Uh, how for me it is important to recognize and have the awareness that uh, breathing is the is the sense that it is this virus is taken away from people. So when many people are uh, struggling to breathe uh, in different senses with the virus directly in their in their lungs, you know, in their in their bodies, but also how to breathe uh, in, with economy with the health uh, 
care, with employment, et cetera, et cetera. It is to, to give it a pause and make sure that even that we are apart physically, we are not really separate because, you know, solitude, it is not the same to be alone. So it is the kind reminder to everybody that we are not alone. We are here, that this is a, a, a struggle and this is a test for every one of us, but we at the program at ELA and for myself, I know that I'm accompanied, even that there is a, a safety distance between us, but it is not a, a distance from our hearts and our well-being and thoughts. And I go gardening, I breathe, I go to my pets. So I always suggest to people to go back to their roots, go back what made them feel complete, how made them feel happy, with what brings you joy, and efforts, or looking for what is the place that you find peace. So when you find that, Go to that place that you are jo that you found joy, that you found peace, and stay there and embrace it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful. Najali, do you want to go next, and then we'll just hear from everybody? Sure. I think um, this is these are tough times, and none of us predicted it. But I would say focus on perspective. When we got into shelter in place in May. We never thought we would be here in November. So we kind of kept on hanging on to hope, you know, as we got these updates and things got worse and the lockdowns got extended. But that's the perspective to keep um, because, and for me personally, that is much better than having both my parents get COVID and have to quarantine and try not to get COVID in my home and so the perspective completely changes. So I'm not saying it could be far worse for you because that's truly not a healthy way to do a, draw a comparative, but it's to keep that perspective that these are times that we could write about one day that our generation went through and our trans resilience is what got us through as a community together. I'm sounding very utopian. Trust me, there are times when I'm very depressed because we're already so isolated. And when we don't see people, we get even more isolated. So I have become a little butterfly in social connections, in trying to find ways to connect and picking up the phone and calling people rather than text. And those are things that really keep me going. Um, and also sticking to my routine, dressing up and preparing for this panel as though I was actually going to Commonwealth Club. You know, that kind of gives you, keeps you going uh, because that's how human mind functions. I love that so much. And I know I was thinking about that today. I'm like, this is the first time I've had to wear dress clothes in I think a couple of weeks. So it's a good alternative. Um, so many good tips. Jenna? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think just... Um, you know, I, I do want to recognize what, what folks are also saying is that it's been a difficult year um, and it's a, a shift of different things. And I think as, as um, community leaders, I think we all hold that weight of the, the experience of global trauma that we're, that many of our community members and many folks around us are experiencing. And so, you know, sometimes you're going to have to step back a little bit and, and, and understand and recognize that, you know, you have to give yourself self-compassion a little bit. 
Um, you have to slow down, ground yourself. I think in my work um, and also in my personal life, I've adapted a, a cultural wellness and mindfulness where I do breathing exercises, which has been really great. I'm not the best. I'm also learning because um, truth be told is it's an anxious, crazy time. But I think that the more that we just open ourselves up to this idea of grounding or developing a practice um, where you follow your breathing, that actually, the slowing down actually is helpful because it does remind us of the breath and it does remind us of who we are and what why and our purpose of being here. And so that and also just staying with, connected with community. Uh, I, I value a small group of community trans folks that I really value and cherish. Um, and that has been actually helpful been helpful for me to sustain this crazy times. Thank you so much. And that reminds me too of just the importance of chosen family, you know, especially with the holidays, you know, we may, may not be able to visit friends or family, but just really having that connection of sisters and uh, friends um, in our community. Um, Shannon, what are some of the strategies? You do so much. How are you? taking care of you while you do all those other amazing things? Well, I'm lucky to love what I do, so that makes it easy. But um, I would say one of the things that has been uh, the, the, the shining um, moment of, of uh, this pandemic has been watching people come together. And I love that as queer folks, we always figure out how to party. So whether that's our, you know, the Queer Nightlife Fund you know, we, we do lots of emails and meetings, but then we get to throw an, a, a monthly event called Quarantine, and it allows us to partner with um, lots of different amazing DJs and performers and hosts. Um, and it's it's something that I really look forward to. And um, we have a, a Zoom room as well, and so you can dance in your living room, and we'll put you on a kiss cam, and just seeing each other living our lives to the best of our ability is is sort of us watching us make it work is just it's what get me gets me through right now yeah i love that so much i feel like i need to do more dancing in my living room to lady gaga or something <laughs> yes please i'll invite you <laughs> um akira would love to hear from you i know that you're doing so much work as well how are you taking care of yourself and what are some wellness strategies that you use or that you aspire to that we're all aspiring to? Well, um, I say for months, I've been like very under the work and in the work. And um, just as of like a few months ago, like maybe two or three months ago, um, I had like, you know, a moment to where I was just like, you know, what is going on? Like, I'm just, I, can, I honestly can't see anything out in the world except for what's coming through emails and what's, you know, folks trauma and, um, and it, it definitely does impact me. Um, but then I, um, I honestly just, I had to stop and just think about all this, all the work that we've put in. I had to think about all the work that we put in. We put in so much work and we're here at this point and, um, we got some more work to do and, um, and just to get me to that, like the bridge, like the cross the bridge, I call people. <laughs> I call people when I'm having some trouble and just like, you know, I need some support. 
Um, and it's, it's fine. I do need support. I do talk to folk and I do get the support and we could share, we bounce off each other and uh, we keep each other strong. And I think this is, that is why we're at this point and that I'm truly, truly, um, like I, I trust that we can continue to keep going through it and just make it out of all of this stuff for the, for the generations. So, um, yes. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I know I've been on many of those calls, um, venting, talking, so appreciate your friendship. Um, and I think, you know, as we come to the, almost to the close of the program, there's so many just insightful things shared from taking care of ourselves to, you know, staying connected virtually, grounding, breathing. Um, you know, obviously in this moment, we're coming into as, you know, a larger, the largest uptick um, in COVID. And it's, you know, really seriously, I think it can get easy to have fatigue um, with COVID. Um, but now more than ever, we need to stay safe, wear our mask, social distance, um, and just really take care of one another and each other. So in closing, I would love just for folks to share one or two words of just something that gives you hope um, for the future and where we're going as a community um, from here, both taking care of ourselves and each other. Jenna? Sure. Um, listen to public health leaders and wear a mask is my advice. Thank you. Shannon? Um, Pride just announced their theme for next year, which is uh, all in this together. And I think that's, that's, the, that's the focal point right now. It's just remembering we're in it together. Uh, Kira? Power building. Um, we talk about the coronavirus, but you know, there's definitely a pandemic of anti-Blackness that's just persisted in this yeah. country and this world. So definitely power building. Thank you. Remy? I'll steal turnout, who's been a great coalition partner and supported a lot of folks' this mission, which is strengthen our community through connections. Thank you. Nicole? Yeah, for me, it is like a, the reminder that nothing lasts forever, that everything passed, and this, this struggle, these challenges also will pass and in community. Beautiful. Well, thank you all so much for uh, joining us. And I really appreciate just all of the wisdom and um, just so much openness and vulnerability and in, in sharing both yourselves and your work, um, as well as the work that we have ahead. Um, and I know that we can do it together. Um, and just so um, grateful to, to have shared this space with you all. So thank you. Um, and now um, it's my honor to turn it over to our next panel, The Future of Trans Rights, um, with our host, Michelle Miao from The Michelle Miao Show. Thank you so much.
Welcome to Trans Awareness Month, or Trans Month Talks on Trans Wellness, Equity, and Health in partnership with the Office of Transgender Initiatives right here in San Francisco. We're now in part B of our program tonight in which our discussion will focus on trans policy from the local to the national level. I'm Michelle Miao and I'll serve as your moderator tonight. Our movement has been through a roller coaster of progress over the last decade and into the 2020s. On a federal level, trans rights went from incredible forward momentum to securing one trans victory after the next, and that momentum came to a screeching halt with the current administration, or feels like it at least. Instead of making federal advances, the transgender nonconforming communities have now had to fend off what felt like weekly attacks on the community. Even though we played political defense on the federal level, our community has persevered and have still made incredible gains, such as the SCOTUS decision on employment discrimination and attaining critical local programs. Give the new makeup of the Supreme Court, a new administration, and a strengthened local grassroots transgender nonconforming movement, what does our future hold for us? What are federal and legal gains to be made? What are our opportunities on the state level? And how does the work we do on the local level impact our community, both in policy and in the flesh? Our uh, panel of experts will answer all those questions for us, for us, I'm sure. I'd like to introduce you now to our panel. We have Sasha Bookert, who's the senior staff attorney over at Lambda Legal. We have Nikki Kalma, otherwise known as Tita Ida, a social activist and also the director of programs and community engagement at the San Francisco Community Health Center. We have Maceo Person, director of communications and external affairs at the Office of Transgender Initiatives also board member of San Francisco LGBT Center and member of the grant-making panel at International Trans Fund. Uh, and Aria Saeed, who's the executive director of the Transgender District and also founder of Queen Culture Initiative. And finally, Amy Whalen, who's senior staff attorney at the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Welcome, everyone. So I think, you know, uh, when we, we popped on Zoom and we saw each other's faces, we were all so excited to see each other. And I really want to hold on to that moment. I think it's good if we just kind of go around and check in with each other and very quickly just to, you know, toss out there, what are what are some of your, your thoughts right now? Um, kind of what are you feeling right now? It's been a pretty wild two weeks. We'll begin with Amy. Great. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for having me here and for having this event. It's such a great way to see people who we miss so much on a daily basis. Um, how am I feeling? You know, I think it, it. I really agree with you, Michelle. This has been a, a bit of a crazy time with the pandemic and with this crazy political climate. And um, I'll just focus on the last couple of weeks where I have felt really hopeful and really relieved and really energized by what's happening um, and the work that we still have to do. And so I'm excited to be here with all of you here and to continue this, you know, important work on behalf of LGBT people um, and their families. Maceo. I um, similarly, I've been feeling energized and just incredibly inspired. Um, I think it's been incredibly inspiring to see the grassroots movements um, sort of take a hold and, you know, being able to steer things in a new direction and know that we can build power. Um, and to also see, I've been like thinking about like what our movement looked like 20 years ago versus now. 
and to sort of just think for me to think about like what I thought was possible 20 years ago versus what I know is happening on the ground in communities all across the country is so incredible like to see the progress and so I just I'm excited to see us being able to just like move more quickly and being able to do so much more uh, moving forward so Nikki. Well, I, I'm on the same page with Maceo. You know, I, I feel very inspired right now. Um, also, I feel kind of like, you know, there's this acceleration going on inside of me because it's it's just been, I mean, for me who works in the healthcare uh, area, you know, around HIV and around the, uh, the, our trans communities, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's translating it to them, to the people that we serve, you know, um, what is going on is is sometimes difficult, especially when you hear from Trump, you know, but now we kind of like, we feel good, you know, we feel good in talking to our uh, clients now and letting them know that, hey, you know, we're, we're on the go, you know, let's accelerate this, you know, so, so kind of excited. Yeah, I want to say first that I'm really excited to be on this panel and see so many friends and nice to meet you, Michelle, and thanks for uh, hosting this. And, you know, I, I do want to say that I've looked up to all of you uh, ever since I was a baby trans person. So it's really neat to be part of this um, this conversation. I think for me, um, what I'm feeling is a little, it's a, it's a little odd in that, you know, we've been in the, we've all been in the trenches, you know, fighting every day for our communities and worrying about the impact of all of these horrific policies. And, uh, you know, the, it's been a slow burn, to be honest. I'm, I'm still just, it's like, it's like right before a shot of adrenaline hits. And I know it's going to hit because I can feel the excitement building, you know, in, in my body <laughs> almost daily, you know, and uh, I, I, I feel like we're on, I'm on the cusp of just exploding into like the possibilities are endless, you know, so I, I, I'm, you know, I'm in that, that, that transition phase, you know, so um, I'm really excited to see what's going to, what's going to come in the next few years. And Aria. Sorry, I was trying to find the Facebook Live to like get folks to tune in, but um, I am feeling the last few months for me, surprisingly, um, I've been filled with a lot of joy um, and really trying to learn how to maximize my own personal joy when everything around feels like the sky is falling. Um, and so I'm really grateful. I just celebrated my 31st birthday on November 7th and, um, you know, woke up to the, the news um, that President-elect um, Biden and, and Vice President-elect um, Harris will, will be our um, president and vice president. And um, just a renewed faith in um, our people and... Um, by our people, I mean the American people, um, and just hope that, you know, that we're one step closer towards uh, the liberation of, of trans folks. I love that, I love that. Thank you, thank you all. And if you're joining us live and you have questions or comments for our panel, please send them through and we'll get them to the person you wanna ask a question. So let's begin with Sasha. You know, you've been working on trans rights on the national and federal level for a long time, first at Transgender Law Center and now at Lambda Legal, the oldest legal LGBT rights organization. How did your work shift from the, uh, working, you know, through the Obama administration 
to the current administration? I love this question. <laughs> yeah, um, well, you know, uh, to be clear, when I was at Transgender Law Center, I did did do some federal work. I worked with Amy and some other folks, you know, in, in working with some of the agencies. And, you know, we saw some positive things moving forward, for sure, uh, especially with, like, the, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Um, uh, but I did. I mostly worked on state-based policy stuff. I worked with Aria on a bill that was really exciting, and some different, you know, exciting stuff that happened in California. Uh, but I always knew that I wanted to get more involved with federal policy work. It, it always attracted me. And then after the election, you know, uh, and one of the first things the Trump administration did was to rescind the trans student guidance. You know, I just became infuriated. You know, I'm an ex-Marine, and I just wanted, I just wanted to be a part of the fight. You know, so as much as I love transgender law center and still do, you know, I just wanted to, I wanted to be here and doing this work and, 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 and be able to punch back directly as, as hard as I can, you know, against some of the, the attacks that I knew were coming, you know, so be careful what you ask for, because sometimes you get it, you know, so, um, you know, I came out here to, to be part of that. And, you know, it's, it's been rough, you know, the, the, the landscape is, you know, obviously, as everybody knows, changed significantly. And uh, I think some of the, you know, one of the things that has opened my eyes in doing this work is how much an executive um, branch can do. You know, I kind of knew this before, but I didn't really know it. And now I do. So regardless of what happens in Georgia, we're going to win in Georgia. You know, but for some reason, if we don't, you know, and even if we do, there is so much that can be done on the executive level. You know, we're, whether it's executive orders um, uh, or, you know, um, the, 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 my, Daily work is involves often working on judges, and the courts have been infected with judge after judge who has a clear bias towards LGBTQ people. Uh, we have a report that we put out at the end of every year, and about one in, out of every three appellate judges has, you know, a clear demonstrated history of animus targeted towards the LGBTQ community. And that's something, these are lifetime positions on the federal judiciary. And that's something we're gonna live with, you know, well beyond, you know, the next four years, the next 10 years, for the next 40 years. So, you know, one of the things that's really important, you know, um, uh, uh, is that we continue to, to press a Biden administration to appoint judges that are gonna be fair-minded and, and be able to interpret the law fairly. And that reflect our community. You know, there was not one person, there was not one uh, African-American judge that was nominated by the Trump administration to sit on the appellate courts in the entire four years. And they've, they've confirmed over 50 uh, appellate judges. So, you know, they, 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 we have to be advancing early and often, and we have to continue, I think in prior administrations, I think for whatever reason, um, we just haven't on the, on the, on the, you know, on the progressive wing, we just haven't prioritized judges and courts as much as I personally feel like we should. And especially after witnessing what I've witnessed for the last four years, it's really important that that be a really high priority in, in whatever we do. Another, you know, piece of my work is, you know, working on um, a lot of the regulatory attacks that we've seen. And some of them are high profile. I think people are probably familiar with the 1557 rule, you know, the rule that would have that, that seeks to carve out LGBT people from the Affordable Care Act and the HUD shelter rule that is trying to, you know, give give uh, shelters the ability to, to gender police transgender people as they come into the shelter. You know, all those things are going to get challenged in litigation, and they're high-profile things that people have probably seen in the news. But there's a lot of stuff under that that isn't as high-profile, that is causing as much damage, if not more, to the LGBTQ community. You know, so I think it's really important that, that we, A, roll those back, whether it's data collection or grant funding, you know, that would strip protections for, 
you know, people trying to access, you know, uh, programs that are funded by the Health and Human Services Agency. There's just a whole range of things that we have to clean up, you know, when we think about moving forward with the Biden administration. But it's also important to think about moving forward. You know, th that, that's the status quo is, you know, moving us back to the Obama era. You know, but they were, and Amy and uh, Tina, uh, Amy and Nikki and, and Maceo and everybody, everybody on this call can, can testify because we've all been around long enough. You know, they were fairly conservative in some of their positions. You know, we, we really tried to push them hard on in being more inclusive with sexual orientation, for example, in some of the policies that we have. And, and they were very hesitant. So I think it's really important, especially in light of Bostock and some of the other um, uh, case law that Amy and others have worked so hard to develop over the last four years, that we, we continue to make sure that we, we push forward further than just the status quo from the Obama era. And the last thing I'll just say is the importance of data collection. This is something that the, the Trump administration homed in on really quickly, you know, and, and made it a priority to, to eliminate data collection for LGBT people because they, they understand the value of that data collection. And it's so important that we, you know, in my opinion, that we uh, make that a priority early because it takes, a t it takes time for that information to come in and those, that infrastructure to get, to get created. And, and unfortunately, I think what happened, one of the lessons that I've learned in this is that you know, a lot of the rulemaking that happened in the Obama era happened in the last couple of years. So it was easier in some ways to sweep some of that away because it wasn't entrenched in the, in the, in the government. So that's another lesson learned. Uh, so I'll stop there, but thank you for the question. Yeah, no, thank you. I think that's a great uh, segue to a question that we had for Aria. You know, we, we saw it the, this year, at least in 2020, you know, something huge happened when the world woke up uh, in a lot of ways. Um, when George Floyd's murder happened, I feel like a lot of communities came out, you know, for racial justice. And racial justice has been a topic of our community for a very long time. When we think about, you know, those at the forefront of the civil rights movement and every equal rights movement, LGBTQ people have been there, especially though, you know, black, trans, GNC folks. And so, Aria, somebody who, you know, works on creating the visibility of black trans women, create space that centers around black trans people, you know, locally, would love to hear your thoughts in terms of you know, holding on to this momentum and, and in hopes that it isn't just a, a one-off or, or that we really get serious about racial justice. Your thoughts? Oh, um, you're right, Michelle. It has been um, a really, really intense year. And um, for so many people, um, unsettling, although for, for many of us who are, um, have compounded experiences, um, like myself as a black trans woman. Um, this is, this is an experience where I feel like we've seen it time and time again. What I am grateful for is that, um, the, the pandemic sort of forced us to sit down and to really look out, um, at the world without rose colored glasses and, um, people were at home and, and 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 saw the injustice and and responded and I'm so grateful um, that that happened. Unfortunately, it took seeing um, video footage of someone being murdered in that way to activate people, but it did activate people nonetheless. Um, I think you know racial justice is is it ebbs and flows um, in the public discourse. 
Um, we, we've seen, um, you know, with the election results, um, over 54% of, is it white folks or white women? It was very specific, but basically voted for, uh, for Trump and, you know, had made a decision that, um, you know, maybe, maybe they're not racist, but, uh, they were willing to ignore racism, um, for all the, all the other uh, reasons that they could consider voting someone like that um, back into office. And so um, I think it's still, we're still in a space where we have to keep having the conversations as uncomfortable as it makes people, um, that these conversations still have to be had um, because, you know, justice has not been served, especially when we see the magnitude um, of violence that our community as a trans community faces um, and not just capital violence. Like we, we experience microaggressions um, and day-to-day violence from people staring at us to gawking at us, harassing us, misgendering us. Like those are all forms of violence against trans people, but very specifically seeing um, that the that there is a genocide impacting uh, trans people and very specifically black trans women. Um, and I feel like we dance around it without talking about how we are being murdered at the hands of, of cisgender men and how, um, you know, race also plays a portion in, in, in it and it, it gets dismissed out of the conversation. And so I think, again, having the uncomfortable conversations to get true to power is is what's going to have us fully shift um, in the coming years, hopefully. We're already starting to get some questions from our audience. Thank you so much and keep sending them. Um, I, picking up from where you left off, Aria, what would be your top or three priorities that you would like to see taken up by the Biden administration in the next four years? Um, yeah, if you'd like to answer that, Aria, before we ask someone else from the, the panel. What is my th- top three priorities for Biden-Harris um, and their administration for trans folks? Um, oh, gosh. I mean, uh, it has to be aligned to our dream of, of building trans futures in which we are thriving um, and that we are included in society. Um, I think... You know, uh, President Biden, um, in his address of accepting um, the Electoral College of win, um, did utter the word transgender. And everyone's like, and I'm like, that's amazing. And that is not enough. Um, We have to see, I think, policies that are protecting um, and being very intentional about protecting transgender people. Um, when it comes to our healthcare as a policy issue, um, that we have equitable access to that healthcare. Um, I think B, um, really working with these federal departments to um, address and pull allocations of funding together to address um, the marginalization and disenfranchisement that our very, very small population, we're a very small population in, the, um, in America. We make up less than 1% of the population, and yet we experience the brunt of oppression in many ways from unemployment, lack of housing. Um, and it's not that we're not applying. We're, we're, not even, we're not even given the chance to be in the room. And so um, I think these federal departments are going to have to be very 
um, intentional uh, funding wise and, and, and collaborating with transgender thought leaders across the country and how this administration could be addressing uh, the epidemics that we do face day to day. And then finally addressing uh, violence. Like this is the deadliest year on record um, for us, as long as we've documented uh, the lives of trans people being taken away from us, either naturally or through murder. This is the deadliest year. The, the list is almost 40 trans people. Um, and so this administration has to do more than just say the word LGBT. They have to do more than just say the word transgender. There needs to be a lot more dialogue um, and centering of our community when it comes to their LGBT affairs. Nikki, would you like to also add to that? Maybe your, you know, some top priorities, some a wish list for the Biden administration. Are you, are you asking me? Oh, I'm, 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 I'm on board with Aria. You know, I mean, working in the healthcare uh, uh, field is that. You know, we a lot of trans folks really still experience discrimination in healthcare. You know, in getting accessing healthcare, and at the same time, you know, I mean, like, so we are happy. We are very lucky here in San Francisco because we have like Gender Health SF who assist our, you know, our uh, trans siblings in terms of like getting their uh, their um, surgeries done and necessary surgeries, but there's still a lot of folks out there who still needs assistance, you know? So, you know, we need to, I, I would love to see this administration, this new administration to really, you know, um, walk the walk when, it, when if they're gonna say, you know, um, and, and work with us in, in terms of all aspects and having us in the room, as Arya said, because, most of the time we're not there. They're making decisions for us. And that's the sad part of this. You know, we, we, they're making decisions for folks who do not, they don't, they don't even have the experience that we have, you know, that we go through. So I think that would be my wish. Thank you. We have another question from the audience. And I think this question um, is good for Maceo, you know, being that you work in the Office of Transgender Initiatives and the mayor's you know, office, but with more trans candidates getting elected to office across the country, are they proposing and passing pro-trans legislation or are there still not enough of them? I think your perspective in being close to elected leaders, especially here in the Bay Area with uh, many of our community members, you know, being successful in their campaigns might have some thoughts around that. Maceo? I mean, I don't feel like there can be ever enough trans people. Um, that's my question. <laughs> Anywhere. Um, it's been really incredible to see so many trans elected officials or trans people get elected into office. Um, that's really a beautiful thing to see. And I want to like push our community. One of the things that I have noticed too, with all the like really amazing trans folks getting elected to offices, that it was also really white field. Um, and so like, how do we also like uplift trans folks of color, black trans people, Latinx trans people, indigenous trans people into offices as well. Um, I think that's really incredibly important. Um, especially if we really do want to center issues around that are intersecting around racism and transness and around like low income issues, wanting to have people in office that have experienced those things and are part of those communities. Um, and I think like as someone who is like serving in local government, I mean, I think one of the things that's so important about us being around is being at the table, right? And being able to say, 
and work on specific policies and work on specific programs and work on specific issues that affect our community because oftentimes not always but so many cis people don't necessarily even can't sometimes are too uncomfortable to say the word transgender um <laughs> ranging from that to being flat out transphobic and thinking that we shouldn't exist and trying to erase us from policies to just also not knowing that we are alive or like what that we have specific issues or that we're falling through the cracks or that we're not getting employed um and so i yeah we just need more more people at the table whether that is in elected offices or serving in government um as city officials as county officials um and on commissions and in all kinds of ways um i think we definitely need always like more representation and as we have that we've been able to push more work forward um i mean i think as we as we've seen our representation multiply over time and over movement we have seen that we have pushed things forward and have made changes although we still have so much more to go so absolutely absolutely well there there is a uh, you know a, a, the lgbtq mainstream media calls it a rainbow wave but it's not really a rainbow wave because we should talk about the colors of you know trans gnc uh, folks um, but we're seeing more gender nonconforming folks being elected to office as well as trans, uh, especially in this election. The next question is um, for Amy, of course. You know, uh, Sasha had brought up the Supreme Court, and we had talked about a SCOTUS decision that was huge for our community and employment rights. Uh, you're working on a case right now representing Artie Edmo. But this is a, a big question for you in talking about this, the new SCOTUS appointments, in, including Justice Barrett, and then, you know, through the uh, President Trump's administration, also appointed someone like uh, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Kavanaugh almost forgot his name. <laughs> Maybe I want to. Um, but how do you see the new SCOTUS appointment impacting the future of the movement, especially, you know, working on a case like you are right now with the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Yeah, you know, I really agree with what Sasha said earlier that it, I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly true for the U.S. Supreme Court with the, with these three appointments that the Trump administration has, um, you know, done during his term. Um, but it's also true in the lower courts. It's true in the district courts and the federal appellate courts. And, you know, being a civil rights lawyer for the last 20 years, it's, um, you know, it's hard to think about how is my life going to change? <laughs> how are our lives going to change on a day-to-day -day basis when we're dealing with this change in the federal, federal judiciary? Um, but, you know, I think that there's, there's so much that can be done at every level. And that is true in state courts. Um, it's true with grassroots organizing. It's true with the amazing work of activists, like some of the people who are on this panel tonight. I mean, there's just so much progress that has been made and so much amazing work that's being done that I think, um, you know, we can only move forward. We will only move forward. There's a certain amount of progress that a social justice movement makes where it becomes incredibly difficult to really turn back um, time. And certainly the Trump administration has tried with all of its might to attack us and to pass policies that have been, you know, not just really dangerous, but really scary to our community for the last four years. And I think 
you know, there's a, there's a bit of a sigh of relief that at least that moment is over, but there's also a recognition like Aria has said and Nikki um, and, and Sasha and everybody on this panel <laughs> that there's, you know, a lot of great work being done. Um, so I'll just, I'll talk briefly about this case. We represent Adri Edmo. She's a native American transgender prisoner housed in the Idaho department of corrections for most of her prison term, she was housed in men's facilities, which is a very, very common practice in prisons and jails throughout this country. Um, and she has been repeatedly punished and targeted for expressing her gender identity and denied basic health care. Um, so one of the biggest issues she faced was that the prison denied her affirming surgery, despite her desperate need for it, including um, being driven to the point of attempting self-surgery. Um, so four months ago, after years of litigation, where the Department of um, Corrections in Idaho attempted to take it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, four months ago, Adri had her surgery. And we were able, through some last-minute um, emergency motions, to even ensure that she had it during the pandemic. And so... You know, this just goes to show you it's an example. This was litigated in a very conservative state of Idaho, um, and we were still able to prevail in this case because we have um, <laughs> we have science behind us and medicine, and we have the reality of discrimination behind us. And, you know, prisons and jails are some of the places where transgender people experience the most horrific experiences that you could imagine in this country. And so at NCLR, it's really important for us to, you know, represent clients who really need us, people who are the most marginalized, the most at risk, the least likely to be able to hire their own attorneys. And so that's, that's become a priority of, of our mission um, as a legal organization and, you know, fighting for people everywhere they are, whether that's in their jobs, whether that's transgender kids in schools, um, whether it's a kid who's, you know, stuck between a custody battle between an affirming parent and a non-affirming parent, you know, representing um, people getting access to health care, both inside prisons and outside. We have a new lawsuit in Arizona challenging um, a discriminatory Medicaid policy where the Medicaid program in Arizona will not provide, will not cover chest surgeries for transgender kids. So these are just examples of some of the work um, that we do in partnership with other people and that hopefully on, you know, will slowly but surely improve the daily lives of transgender people around this country. Sasha, let's pick up from that. I mean, I think I heard you talk about, you know, not uh, being in the, the defensive and turning to the offensive, hopefully with the, a Biden administration. Um, we saw the previous or I'm already jumping the gun and, and hoping that it's already 2021. I mean, during the Trump administration, you know, uh, a page out of their playbook was either, you know, the president was going to uh, do something dangerous through an executive order, or as we've been talking about, you know, appointing a lot of uh, conservative judges to the courts. Have we thought about what might be a strategy, you know, to 
for some of these cases, these lawsuits that we're going to have to file on behalf of our community. And if, you know, some of these judges may rule the other way, uh, kind of scary, you know, some stuff coming out of even Justice Alito, uh, not all of a sudden, but definitely recently. Yeah, and I think Amy touched on this, you know, but I think it's, you know, you know whenever we do impact litigation, which means that we're trying to, you know, we're, we're working with, you know, uh, one plaintiff or a handful of plaintiffs trying to make a difference for a large number of people, you know, it's always really important to be strategic about deciding where you're going to file a case. You know, there's the Fifth Circuit, for example, is a circuit court that covers Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi. And even before the Trump-Pence administration, it was a pretty tough place to bring a case. And it's gotten way, way worse. So if you're going to bring a federal case trying to make a difference for a large number of people, you don't want to create bad case law precedent. And that's just become, as you just mentioned, a whole lot more difficult. So we have to think a lot harder about where we where we're filing cases. Sometimes you don't have that luxury. You know, you've got a person in distress, and it's really important that the, the case be filed on their behalf. But but as far as you know, the strategic thinking, we have to think about you know where we're going to file. And as Amy mentioned, you know, also historically, if you look at the way LGBT groups have done a lot of their litigation, a lot of it was at the state court level. So we can be looking at the state courts to advance protections, you know, because the federal judiciary has been so infected. Uh, but we can also, you know, again, press the Biden administration to move quickly and continue, you know, to, to fill vacancies as soon as possible. Again, you know, we just haven't prioritized judges in the way that the right has, you know, and I think it's really important that we as a community and advocacy community make sure that that's on the top of top of mind, you know, because, you know, time goes by really quickly. And, you know, I know that we have all these other priorities, but until we start leveling the playing field in some of these different circuits and these in, in some of the federal uh, courts, it's going to be you know, tough, 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 tough. Uh, what's the tough road to hoe or whatever the saying is. So, yeah, I think that we just have to think strategically. I think in addition to what, you know, Amy mentioned already too, you know, there's a whole lot of room and, and, and uh, sorry, and Aria mentioned, there's so much room for, you know, what really gets me going as an advocate is doing creative, uh, positive, progressive policy work. You know, and, and we've done a lot of that in California. We should be we should be thinking strategically in other places where this can be, where we can move, where we can move explicit protections forward. You know, ideally we'll have the Equality Act sometime soon. But in lieu of that, we can do a whole lot of good on the state level. You know, that beyond just non-discrimination or protections are really, really important. But in California, for example. Just this last session, there was a law passed that requires going forward that trans prisoners be housed consistent with their gender identity. And that, should, that shouldn't be unusual. That should be something that's the standard. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so dangerous to be housing people that don't want to be housed, you know, inconsistently with their gender identity. You know, it just creates a really dangerous situation for them. And, it, and it's an absolute failure to protect them. So I think that that's something we should be thinking about, you know, uh, more aggressively and proactively across the country in addition to the other strategies. Thank you so much. We have another question from the audience. This question is for Nikki and Aria. What can LGBTQQIAAP nonprofits um, do differently to be more supportive of trans people? We'll begin with Nikki. Um, well, I think it's so important to have allies, allies around, you know, because they're, um, they, they, they'll be there when you need them, you know, but um, I, I think there's a lot of things that they can do. I mean, I, just supporting, for, for example, there's so many organizations now that are trans-led, you know, so I think they should 
collaborate with this organization and support and uplift them for their projects, for their programs, and 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 just be, you know, see how and and support trans leadership, you know, um, and also at the same time, um, there's opportunities uh, to invest for leadership, you know, in uh, in in tran the transgender community. Um, one thing that I always advocate for is leadership development in the transgender community because, you know. For, for example, some, someone like me who's been around for almost 25 years in the HIV field, you know, I'm kind of tired already, you know, I, I, I need to pass on the baton and make sure that other folks can 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 uh, continue the work that I've done, you know. So I think there are so many opportunities that LGBTs can, can really just be part of if they if they haunt it in uh, accordingly to what is needed in the in the trans community. So. All right. Um, I agree with Nikki. Um, I think it it's such a it's such a tricky time in this particular moment for a lot of nonprofits, especially LGBT nonprofits, to to really sort of be sustainable. Um, but I will say for um, LGBT nonprofit projects that are pretty large in terms of um, funding and and what have you, I do have a couple things that um, that my project does, the Transgender District, um, that I think is is important um, in, in ensuring that um, your organizations staff-wise are um, centering and, and thinking of uh, the possibilities of, of trans people being um, staff. And one of those things is, is really removing education requirements um, for positions that are not, like if you're a lawyer, then obviously you'd need the skills for that, but um, if it's not super specific, then um, you know I don't have a college degree, and um, my work is high impact and, and national now. So there's no there's no you know there's there's no barometer to determine um, whether a degree is going to ensure success in a role. I think it really is just about um, you know supporting supporting your folks, um, equitable salaries. Um, you know, you should be paying trans folks as top talent. Um, I firmly believe this. Even if someone is entry level, they're probably going to take on additional things along the way that require a certain emotional labor. Um, and, and they should be compensated for that. They, they shouldn't be struggling, you know, two days before payday trying to figure out how to get to work. Um, and then you have them you know, on the bathroom committee to turn the bathrooms to all gender restrooms, like, no, and that's not their job. Like, um, so equitable salaries um, are ideal. Um, and I think also expanding health coverage. I think a lot of um, organizations can actually pursue like the PPO healthcare benefits and, and sponsor it at 90% uh, so that trans people have more autonomy and, and picking who they're, where, how they're getting their medical care um, and what options they have. Like, it's not enough to, I mean, we all love Kaiser, but it's not enough to just be like, here you go. And it's like the bare bones plan where the copay is like 70 bucks. Like that, that doesn't promote success and morale for your, for your folks. Um, and acknowledging that trans folks are going to need a little more um, time in the first few months of, of being hired to, to get things taken care of that a, a, an average cis person in a role probably won't need. 
Just my just my thoughts. I was going to say, both of your thoughts. Wow, that was so good. Thank you. Um, this question is from the audience, and it's for Maceo. Uh, why is uh, in all the county in the city of San Francisco, there is no specific program or resources for an older trans person, specifically in the trans-Latinx monolingual immigrant community? Yeah, I mean, I think that's hard. We have a good amount of resources. However, like specifically monolingual Spanish-speaking resources for trans elders, that's possibly a gap, right? Like that needs to be filled. Um, we have really incredible, wonderful organizations like Ela Para Trans Latinas and Chicas at Instituto Para La Raza, Familiar Para La, para la, de la Raza. They have programs for trans Latinas that are monolingual speaking, but maybe it's not elder specific and there are elder specific issues that do come up. Um, an open house and uh, Kerr Senior Center and I believe also SF Community Health Center is working on it as well, have had programs for trans elders specifically, um, which is really important and really incredibly um, wonderful that we've been able to develop those programs. And yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great question. Like, how do we make sure that we can support monolingual Spanish speakers or monolingual speakers of different languages in those programs as well? Um, and I think, I think one thing that I was thinking about too with this sort of the statewide wins or in general about representation is also about like the power of the grassroots movement. We've seen that in the presidential election. And I want to also go back to that goes both like on a local level and on a federal level and on a statewide level. So I think, you know, it takes people asking questions like these to people like me, to the board of supervisors to say like, hey, this is a need that we have that we need to fill and figure out a way to serve our community. Um, and I wanna to continue to encourage people to ask those questions, ask those questions to the board of supervisors um, and to us. And I also wanna like encourage people to do that at the statewide level. One thing I also want to bring up was that um, the Invest in Trans Lives Coalition that was led by the Trans Latina Coalition um, this year did something Again, like 20 years ago, I would have never imagined was possible. And they went to the state of California and they said, hey, we are experiencing tremendous health disparities in trans and gender conforming communities. Um, and we need to have that address. And California, you need to like set up a fund to make sure that trans led organizations are receiving the funding that we deserve in order to serve our communities and make sure that our wellness is prioritized. Um, and, you know, like that was sort of like it was seen as a long shot and the organizing that happened around that, the grassroots organizing around calling the state legislature, um, getting people involved, getting people involved on social media and, you know, calling out their state legislature, legislators out on social media and saying, hey, we need this. We we passed it. We passed the country's first ever specific fund, state fund for trans wellness. Um and that's that's huge and that's creative and that was a bold and risky move and and we got it. It was a victory. And so I think like I just want to encourage people to ask those, continue to ask those kind of questions, continue to get involved. Um, and I think like similarly on a local level, right? People kept saying we need actually more resources for housing subsidies. So we increased the funding in housing subsidies. You know, Lion Martin came and said, have a Save Lion Martin campaign and said, like, you know, we need funding to make sure that it stays. This is the one place that trans people go to see healthcare, mental health services, and you know, going to the board of supervisors and making that campaign has has really paid off because it makes the board of supervisors say, right, this is a need that we need to invest in. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so I think like for me, my passion has always been in grassroots organizing and building power and always continuing to encourage people to do that. Well, that's a great um, segue, I think, you know, for, for us to talk about. We, we've been talking a whole lot about the federal level and kind of our wishes for this new administration that's incoming for the 2021 year. What about locally? What are some of your hopes or what you think we should focus on, you know, as far as trans policies and continuing progress? Amy. Sure. Um, you know, so I... We are, NCLR is a national organization, so we're very looped into the local community in San Francisco as well and have partners here. Um, but it's not our focus as much, except that we do work on um, California legislation. And so, you know, I think, but I, I have lots of opinions about <laughs> this issue. And I think that a lot of the work and the policies that um have to be worked on federally also apply to to the localities and to states and so of course like you said Michelle we you know there are immediate things we need to do on the federal level that will that will affect transgender people across the country and that includes immediately undoing the anti-trans policies of the Trump administration um, but you know we NCLR has a partnership with Santa Clara County um, aimed at keeping LGBTQ kids out of the child welfare and criminal systems. It's called Support Out, and it takes a public health approach to youth well-being. And the objective is to sort of transform those systems to ensure that there's a strong safety net for low-income LGBTQ kids of color and their families. Um, you know, we also locally here have, NCLR has a a immigration and asylum project where we provide direct services to people who are seeking asylum in this country because of persecution in their home countries or who are having immigration related issues. So we um, have those deep ties to, to our local community here. We have our conversion therapy um, campaign called Born Perfect, where we um, have worked in localities around the country to pass um, laws that ban the practice of conversion therapy on um, related to sexual orientation or gender identity from licensed therapists. And the, so those bills ban licensed therapists from practicing conversion therapy on kids. Um, and I think that we really look at our work through a poverty lens. Um, so Tyrone Hanley, who is our, is, um, our senior policy council in Washington, D.C., um, he leads up our work, which is part of a LGBTQ anti-poverty network. And that's basically a collaboration of more than 100 national, state, and local organizations around the country that work um, in the LGBTQ anti-poverty and anti-hunger movements. And so, you know, especially um, as a result of this pandemic and the health challenges that have resulted and the issues with our economy, this work is more important than ever. We just helped to create a transition memo for the Biden administration, which is focused on, you know, the things that we want that administration to do in the first hundred days of office. So, you know, this kind of question, I could go on forever, but those are just a couple of examples of things that I think are deeply important um, to our community and, you know, is work that we're going to have in these, this coming year for sure. 
Anyone else want to add to that? Anything you think we need to focus on locally? Um, yeah. So um, I think uh, with the pandemic, um, I, I don't know if it's a policy issue locally so much as um, just a, an abrasive reality, which is that we are in, in a moment that is worse economically than the Great Depression. Um, and I feel like everyone dances around it, but you know, so many people are awaiting unemployment. So many, um, that law just passed that made it so that, uh, fringe workers, folks who are independent contractors are, um, you know, like Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, et cetera, like, um, or food couriers, what have you, like, and, and the limitations that has in terms of safety nets for things like when a pandemic happens, um, how many sex workers do we know can call up the unemployment line and get and get benefits or to get some sort of reprieve? And so there has to definitely be more mutual aid funds um, to come out again, especially with the surge of cases uh, of COVID during this time. Um, I also think investing in in trans futures, I keep, that's like the word of the day for me, but um, something the Transgender District is doing is we're launching our Entrepreneurship Accelerator Program. Um, and we have partnered with uh, the Black Lives Matter Global Network and Long-Term Stock Exchange to make this a possibility. And um, our cohort of 10 trans folks uh, will exit with um, a full sort of ready-to-go business plan and uh, they'll have their tax filings. They'll be a licensed business. They'll have their website running. They'll have their branding. And we're giving them seed grants. And I think, you know, it's, I think we have to, yeah, it's very important to me that we move away from just like trying to train folks to get jobs at McDonald's and then McDonald's won't hire them. If McDonald's won't hire us or people won't hire us, then we got to create the shit ourselves. And then we can hire each other, excuse my language, sorry. Um, but with, then we can hire our people. Um, that's, that's what we're asking every entrepreneur who enters this program, um, that we're giving them a grant, not a loan, uh, to start their, their business. And the only requirement is that if they become lucrative, uh, that they make a promise and a commitment to the trans district, uh, that they'll reach back and hire other trans folks as much as possible. And I feel like, that is what's going to really shift the tides of, of the disparities that a lot of our community is facing. Um, and we have to invest in that. And unfortunately, uh, for philanthropy and, and other institutions, it's not attractive to donate to an idea in that way or to invest in that kind of idea. Um, but, but we have to invest in our futures as much as we do um, in, in responding to uh, the violence that we endure from our, our government, local, state, and, and federal, um, and when it comes to, to policy as well. Aria for president. <laughs> well, I can't believe it, but we've already spent almost an hour, and so I've got one last question for you before we bring Claire back on to say goodbye to everyone. And, you know, just as much as there's a lot of work to do locally, or statewide, there is a lot of work to do federally. And so I just very quickly, we'll go around here. Um, and it, I think all of you should be serving in the, the Biden administration if you've not already been tapped to do so. Uh, but if you were, if he were to come and ask you to join his cabinet or you know, some position in his administration, 
which would it be? What role do you think would be good for you? We'll start with Nikki. Well, <laughs> that's that's a broad uh, selection there. You know, I think for me, I'll stick to what I know uh, and what I I've come to is to maybe be part of um, um, the Biden's um, uh, response to HIV and AIDS. You know, because this is still something that we need to address, especially in the trans community. You know, um, it. Um, Trans folks, trans women are the highest, you know, rates of HIV infection here in a country in terms of like, you know, the when you really just have to do sex work and you can't do anything, you know, I mean, those things. So they get infected or 49 times likely to be infected with HIV, you know, trans women. So um, I would like to be in that department and really, you know, um, look into um, what do you call it? It's the... Um, uh, policies in, in in prisons, you know, for trans women who are living with HIV, you know, and, and see what we can do to correct what is not, you know, criminalization, HIV criminalization, you know, those things. I love those things, so. It's perfect. Sasha? Um, this is kind of a nerdy answer, but there's this, there's this agency called the Office of Management and Budget that uh, works with all the different agencies and it's kind of like the, you know, the, the rules go to them and they get to have input about them. And one thing I'm worried about is that because the courts have been so infected by these right-wing judges that if unless these rules are done the way they should be done and, and every I is dotted and every T is crossed, you know, that they're likely to get challenged, you know, uh, in court. And plus it'll give, you know, some ability to have some input on the different um, the rulemaking that happens from the different agencies. If not that, the Veterans Administration, I'm a veteran, so that's, that's the other piece. <laughs> and I love that nerdy position. I mean, somebody's got to do it, and you'd be perfect. <laughs> um, Maceo. Hi. I mean, in some ways, I would, I mean, it would be really amazing, right, if the Biden and Harris administration had an Office of Transfer Initiatives, Right like an office that actually looks at trans issues systemically across departments um, and also are responsible in making sure that we get trans people in all of the departments um, as well. So like supporting the administration, finding trans people that we can appoint to lots of different positions all across all of the departments um, and look at sort of the big issues systemically and how we can tackle them. Um, um. Absolutely. Amy, Attorney General? Uh. <laughs> oh my God. I think I'm not qualified for anything, but I would, I think it would be fun to be part of the transition team because I think, you know, I hope that the Biden Harris administration will remember the first four years of Obama and how they moved very slowly. And I think it's really essential that the Biden Harris administration move quickly and, you know, undo immediately the anti-trans policies of the Trump administration and contracts with private prisons, address poverty issues and decriminalize sex work to the extent that they can do that on the federal level or have enticements to do that. I think figuring out ways to address the toxic culture of sexism and racism that 
has led to extreme violence against the trans community and black and brown trans women in particular, um, making sure that anti-discrimination laws are being enforced in employment, in housing, prisons and jails, the healthcare system. So, you know, I, I think I would be, I would want to be part of the, the initial push of undoing the harm that has has been happening for these past four years and trying to get us back on course. Amazing. And yeah, um, I don't know what you mean by saying you're not qualified for all that. We need, we need lots of you, I think, in the part of the transition. Hopefully that's the case. Last but not least, Aria. Um, okay. Well, I first thought, I guess I would want to be Olivia Pope. Um, LOL, if people watch Scandal, then they'll know. But um, fun fact about me, I actually, um, I did an internship when I was 16, 17 for Bank of America, and we had to do etiquette trainings from the chief of etiquette at the White House, in the White House. And so um, years ago, anyways, her name was Becky Pitts. I wonder if she's still alive. But anyways... I would love to be like an etiquette officer, which has nothing to do with like trans policy or cultural districts or trans districts or anything. But I don't know that that's probably why they wouldn't even pick me because I would want the, the etiquette officer job. LOL. No, no, I think they absolutely need you and you'd be great, you know, just to uh, help first lady, first woman, uh, Joe Biden, maybe, you know, even implement those changes in the White House. And, and uh, Sasha has actually put in our chat that there's a link for applicants on the Biden-Harris website. So uh, I would love to see all of you, and I'd be so incredibly proud that you're representing us. Well, that's the end of our program, and thank you so much for your uh, expertise and your insights. We'll, we'll bring Claire back, who's with the Office of Transgender Initiatives, and help put all of this together with our incredible partners. Claire. Thanks so much, Michelle. What a great conversation. And I loved your closing question. So many incredible, incredible answers. Absolutely. And, and thank you um, for helping us put all this together. Any last thanks and, and, and shout outs out there for us before we close the program? Yeah, I just wanted to give a reminder to please visit our website, which we linked in the chat for all the additional events that are happening throughout the rest of the month. Um, and wanted to highlight Nikki's work for Trans Day of Remembrance that takes place on Friday, November 20th. And there'll be a virtual uh, ceremony to honor those that we've lost to violence, um, as well as um, they're hosting Transgiving the week after. Um, and folks can stop by and pick up food and resources. And so just really using this time is how we can give back to one another and really remember um, both trans awareness, but how we can take the next step into action. And so many great insights from the panels, both panels tonight, around how we can do that work moving forward. So thank you so much and really looking forward to the work ahead together. 
And thank you to all our incredible experts, our panelists. Love all the work that you do. Please support the work that our advocates do. It's so important. And thank you for joining us for Transit Awareness Month and uh, also the Commonwealth Club for providing the platform for these important discussions. If you'd like to see more programs or hear more of what's coming up, head to commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Have a great night. We'll see you next time.